Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and we're in week two of year two of MDDDS. And so thank you for tuning back in with us. We're going to head into the meat of the book of Romans, the epistle by the Apostle Paul. And it's going to be David Flatt, cardiologist, who will be talking to us tonight. We're going to look at chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. We're going to set the stage for the rest of Romans over the next three weeks. And I've heard David give this class some of the best theology to be found, I believe, in the entire Bible right here in Romans. And so I think chapters 1 through 4 and then 5 through 8 we'll do in a couple weeks after Labor Day. Uh, It's really hard to beat those eight chapters. Again, thanks for being here with us. Uh, You can hang around after the end. I'll have some comments based on kind of what David talks about. Of course, if you're in town, you live in Memphis, you're a medical or dental student, we really do invite you to come to our house, Germantown, Mondays, 6.30. Uh, We'll have dessert, coffee, occasionally we do a meal, and we'll have some really uh, theological uh, discussion. So we're going to look at hard topics and discuss those things together. And so I hope this podcast is a blessing to you, but really it works best when you come in person. So I do want to invite you to join us. All right, so I've talked too much with the introduction. I apologize to David. I'm sure he'll still do a great job with this. But here is David Flat with Romans 1 through 4. Well, listen, thanks everybody for coming tonight. We got, I think we got like 100% return. I was thinking, I wrote everyone's name down last week. Oh, yeah, we're missing um, Kaylee. But other than that, she's represented That's right. So I guess everybody's made it through the first couple weeks of school, and um, that's great. So. Um, we are studying Romans, and last week I think Kyle just did an awesome job on Romans, introduction to Romans, and then also just try, kind of talking about our group and uh, what what we're trying to accomplish. So we're going to kind of jump into the text now. So if you guys remembered, maybe we should pass the posters around. Yeah, I think some people have them. There's some really organized people that did their own tabs and they folded the little sheet. He was checking your binders. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got it and who doesn't? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who's at MDDDS standard? So if you look at the uh, the picture here, here's the um, I think I have a slide that actually shows it. So if you look here, the the idea here um, we talked about last week how Romans is such a beautifully written letter it's you can kind of compare it to like a symphony and just like a symphony has movements there's really four broad movements in the letter of Rome, uh, to the Romans so we're going to talk about the first one tonight one through four and then uh, next week Kyle will talk about the next one which is five through eight then uh, Grant Dasher who's a dentist who goes to church with us he'll teach on the third one which is nine through eleven which is probably the most difficult three chapters in the whole Bible to understand. So Kyle and I assigned someone else to teach that. <laughs> and then, uh, then we'll finish up with 12 through 16. And so we'll just do uh, one of the movements a week for the next four weeks. And so obviously we'll start tonight with the first movement. And um, so let's jump in. But before, well, before we get too far in, I want uh, to show the video that the Bible Project guys made about one through four, and then we'll kind of do a little background, and then we'll just run through the text. So for each uh, chapter, we'll talk about what's the key point of the chapter, what's the key text in the chapter, what two or three verses kind of makes the point, then what's a quote that somebody smarter than me said about uh, that chapter, and then what's kind of the gospel context, and um, so we'll kind of walk through that. But first, let's start with the Bible Project guys and their uh, short video. We're just going to explore the ideas in chapters 1 through 4. So Paul opens by introducing himself as an apostle appointed by God to spread the gospel about Jesus, how he's the Messiah of Israel who was raised from the dead as the Son of God, King of the nations. And Jesus now calls all humanity to come under his loving rule. And Paul says this good news about King Jesus is, first of all, God's power to save people who trust in him, And second, that it reveals God's righteousness. Now, righteousness is a rich Old Testament word for Paul. It describes God's character, that he always does justice, what is right and what is good, but also that he is faithful and just to fulfill his promises. And Paul's saying that the story of Jesus shows how God has done both of these things. How? Well, he goes first into a long creative retelling of Genesis chapters 3 through 11. He shows how all the Gentile world, all the nations, 
have become trapped in the spiral of sin and selfishness. The human heart and mind are broken, Paul says. We've turned away from God to embrace idolatry, which means finding ultimate significance in created things and then giving ultimate allegiance to these things that are not God. This results in a distortion of our humanity and destructive behavior. And so what's left is a humanity that stands guilty as charged before a just and righteous God. To which the people of Israel might say, well, it's a good thing then that God chose our people out from among the nations. He saved us out of slavery in Egypt. He gave us the laws of the Torah, like the Sabbath and eating kosher and circumcision. And these all together show us how to live as God's holy people. But, Paul says, not so fast. He recalls the storyline of the Torah and of the rest of the Old Testament, which shows that Israel was just as sinful and idolatrous and morally broken as the rest of humanity. Israel is actually more guilty than the Gentiles, Paul says, because they have the Torah. They should know better. And so, Paul concludes, all humanity, Gentiles, Israelites, are hopelessly trapped and guilty before God. But that is not the final word. The good news about Jesus is God's response. Instead of holding humanity guilty, Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to die on behalf of all people as a sacrifice for sin. As our representative, Jesus took into himself all of the just consequences of the pain, the sin, and the death that we have caused in the world. And he overcame it all by his resurrection from the dead. It's his new resurrection life that he makes available to others. Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. And all of this, Paul says, is how God justifies those who trust or have faith in Jesus. Now, justification is another rich Old Testament term for Paul, and it's related to God's righteousness. It literally means to declare righteous. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, we are given a new status before God. Instead of finding us guilty, God declares that a person is in a right relationship with him and is forgiven. Justification results in a new family. The person who trusts in Jesus is given a place among God's covenant people. Justification also results in a new future, which begins a journey of life transformation by God's grace. And so all of these things about justification are God's gift to those who through their faith are in Christ. And so this leads Paul in chapter 4 to explore the huge implications that all of this has for who can be a part of God's covenant family. He goes back to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Before any of the laws of the Torah were given to Israel, Abraham was justified or declared righteous before God. How? Well, God promised that Abraham would become a father of a large multi-ethnic family that would receive God's blessing. But he and his wife Sarah, they were really old. They had never been able to have children. But nonetheless, Abraham had radical faith and trust in God's promise. And so God declared him to be righteous. And so Paul says, now Abraham has become the father of God's new covenant family. And it's spreading all around the world. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles who have the same kind of faith and trust in the one who fulfilled God's promise to Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. So let's pause and summarize Paul's main ideas here in chapters 1 through 4 because they're the foundation for understanding the rest of the letter. All humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That rescue, however, is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create that multi-ethnic family of Abraham based on faith as his own new covenant people. And so Paul's going to go on to show how this new family is a part of something much, much bigger that calls them to a whole new way of life together. But it's all going to be rooted in these core ideas explored in chapters 1 through 4 of Paul's letter to the Romans. Man, that's good stuff. Good stuff. So uh, I think it goes without saying that I'm not going to do those kind of ideas justice. And those, the kind of ideas in Romans 1 through 4 have literally shaped the world and have changed the way um, that, that billions of people live their lives and view their eternity. So these are some of the most, just from like a historical um, kind of geopolitical, what has, what has shaped the world we live in perspective, the most important words that have ever been written. They... Uh, were the 
um, foundation for the Reformation and kind of European thought for the past six or seven hundred years, and of course before that even the start of Christianity. Um, so we're really dealing with here, um, kind of even apart from its religious context, a monumental text that has influenced millions of people. And the flip side is I happen to believe that it's true. And so if these words are true, it is not just moved armies and shaped nations, but it is the foundation for what is going to determine your eternity. And so we have a reason to be interested in it, not just because, man, isn't this cool how, this, how much this has meant to so many other people. It's, isn't this amazing what it's going to mean forever? So that being said, I want to try to embark on a task that I'm certainly not up to, but let's look at Romans 1-4 through 4 and see if we can kind of put in to our context as medical and dental students um, what Paul may be saying about the gospel to us. So here's um, obviously the poster. We got the symphony with the four movements there. We're going to talk about uh, the movement one through four tonight. So just a little background. We're going to try to not finish on time uh, this year. So I'm not going to try to not spend too much time on this. But I do think if we're going to kind of understand the details, you kind of got to think about big picture real quick. So it's really almost that's the way to study. I guess you guys will probably figure that out if you're in medical and dental school, but. Understand the big picture, then the details will matter. If you start trying to understand like a amino acid sequence, it's not going to make any sense to you. So first understand like what is a protein? Why does this matter? Right? So let's think big picture, then we'll go small. So big picture, uh, these are gospel themes in Romans. So this, this is like big picture stuff that summarizes the gospel. The first is this idea of separation. This is not on your sheet. You may want to scribble this up in the top right corner if you think it matters. If you don't, you can just, uh, I guess, tune me out. We'll get to the, the notes in just a second. So the first idea, gospel theme is in Romans, the theme is separation. So this is essential to the gospel, this idea that you're separated from God. And I'll just briefly say, as like a, a, a medical professional, um, sometimes we get the opportunity to give good news right? And when we get to do that, I think it's important to reflect on what does that good news come in the context of? And the background story is almost always the potential for bad news, right? So there's, we've all got like a couple stories I can tell. There's this um, guy I saw this week at uh, actually Sunday after church at Nukes, and he's telling the story of what happened to him and, and his wife. He had a Big heart attack. The front artery in his heart called the LED was totally occluded. He had V-fib. He died on the table. And long story short, like they got him to the cath lab in time, opened his vessel. Um, they did something called Dr. Ice. They lowered his body temperature to like, you know, 94, 95 degrees Celsius. Kept him there for three days. Total like, you know, one in a hundred shot and it worked. He's up walking, you know, 100% what he was before. It's like, that's really awesome, right? He's just like, every day he's like sitting there eating his chicken salad at Nukes. He's like, this is good chicken salad, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, life is good. And, but the reason that like, he feels so amazing about the care that he got is because it, it came in the context of like what could have happened, right? So if I just walked up to you and we had chicken salad tomorrow at Nukes, we'd just be like, you know, I, I mean, it's okay, yeah, it's fine. But if you almost died six months ago and now you're living life just totally normally because you were rescued, you'd feel really thankful. And so I think this is, I don't want to get too much on a, a tangent, but this is part of what I think we miss in the church in kind of postmodern 2018 culture is we're trying to tell people that we have a cure for a disease that they don't believe they have and that we're not willing to tell them that all humanity has, right? We're not even willing to admit that we had a disease that Jesus cured, right? We kind of just, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, everything's okay. And so I'm not saying we need to stay here as the church, but if we don't talk about separation, then rescue makes no sense, right? So who wants a life preserver? Drowning woman in the water. Who does not want a life preserver? woman walking on the sidewalk, right? And it doesn't seem helpful. So we've got to tell the story of separation and how we need to be rescued. And Paul does an incredible job of that in the first two chapters of Romans. Okay, so separation and justification will be the two things I talk about tonight. And so justification is a legal status. It's God's declaration, you are right with me. You're right with me. That's, that's justification. 
Third principle Kyle's going to talk about in, uh, in two weeks. We'll be off next week for Labor Day, but in two weeks, talk about sanctification. This is a progressive process. So this is the idea that we're becoming more godlike through your Christian walk. So if justification is true, if every, all the people of God are declared righteous in God's sight, does that mean that all sin is eradicated from our lives and the life of the church? There's no more greed. There's no more um, racism. There's no more idolatry. There's no more... Um, you know, gluttony and selfishness and pride existing in the church. Well, of course not. That stuff is rampant in the church. Why? Because, because justification is a moment, a declaration, but sanctification is a process. So we're struggling and living with our natural self, our flesh, versus our spirit uh, throughout our Christian life. And so Paul's, or Paul's going to talk about that in chapters 5 through 8, and Kyle will teach about that next week. And then finally, glorification. This is our, our end hope. I think this is helpful to, for me to think about this because I think like most of you think, I think about um, the material world and my goals for life and what I want to get done this week or this month or maybe in the next 24 months. Sometimes I think about like life goals, like you know, you might write down here the um, I've got a list 30 things I want to do before I'm 60. So like when I turn 30, I made 30 goals for the next 30 years. So you may even think like long term like that. But that's not really the way the Bible thinks. When the Bible's talking about long-term, it's talking about not the next 30 years, the next 30 million years. Because the truth is, you are going to exist forever. You're a forever person. And ultimately, the people of God will be glorified and will exist with God for all of eternity. And so if that's your perspective, then we should live differently today. Because our goal isn't to somehow get our um, retirement account at the right number by the time we turn 65. Our goal is to make a difference for the next 10 million years. And so all that being said, I think there's two problems that we're confronted in Romans. The first is our condition. So our condition is sinners. We're sinners and we're separated from God. So this is not a good like Bible study growth strategy to tell everyone at the Bible study you're a sinner and you're separated from God, right? Uh, but it's true. And so I think part of the strategy is we tell each other the truth because we want to be sharpened by what's true, not by what's, what feels good. The second problem in Romans is our consequence. So the consequence of sin is death. And not just death at the end of your four score and seven, death forever, eternal separation from God. And so those are really the two problems that Paul's confronting the church in Rome with. Paul himself and all the members of the church in Rome are sinners, and because of their sin, they're separated from God. And so with that as a background, let's jump into Romans 1. So I hope, I hope you got a chance to read Romans 1-4 through 4 this week. If you did or didn't, let me encourage you in the next 48 hours, sit down and just read it. It takes about 30 minutes maybe uh, to get through all four chapters, and it's really worth reading. So in Romans 1, the key point is that all humanity is trapped in sin, that's your blank, and needs to be rescued. All humanity is trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. So let's look at uh, the verse here. So this is Romans 1, chapters 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown to them for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God, uh, immortal God for images resembling resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, so this is what you might call pagan moralism, right? This is, I think, basically the worldview of 2018 America. So this is a worldview of, of course, morality exists. There's things that are right and things that are wrong. And in fact, we, maybe as a culture, we have strong opinions about what is right and what is wrong. But those opinions are not necessarily formed based on the revelation of God. It's based on kind of the, the rationale and the opinions of a popular culture, right? And so what Paul's saying here is that all people everywhere in the world know that God exists and that all people can see the existence of God from 
uh, creation. So look at, um, look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So you look at creation, you can see there's a natural order to the way that, that the natural world works. That didn't happen by accident, right? So um, Paul's kind of arguing here that there's no such thing in, in their deepest kind of convictions and their loneliest places in their heart. There's no such thing as an atheist. Everyone kind of knows at the bottom, like, this isn't all just an accident. So when you, when you sit down and you feel love or you feel existence or you feel your own consciousness, you know there's something going on beyond um, molecules and atoms and um, organic chemistry occurring to, uh, in accidents to make existence possible. You know there's something beyond that from nature. And... Society, I, I would reject that statement just on the basis that I hear so often that's not how people think. You know, yeah. I would hear, in fact, that people think, well, sure, it's believable to think it's all by chance or by accident, and in fact, that's more believable than that some god created it. You know, um, of course, we've gone it like last year. We went into a lot of this sort of stuff to kind of combat that mm-hmm. mindset. But if you tell someone that's an atheist or call themselves that, what sure, you just said they'd say. Whoa, whoa, wait a second, you know. Um, but I think that you know we give special pleading to science, and we give special mm-hmm. pleading to a lot of things that aren't even conclusive, you know, from science theories and things like that. Um, and anything that you give to God is, is seen as special pleading by atheists or by agnostic. Um, but I would say this, just like if you've not looked into all the apologetics of, of science and mm-hmm. the universe and just the complexity of things and the uh, probabilities that this all came into existence by chance. Um, it's something to be ashamed of. Like, I think Christianity stands, and that's not a Christianity thing, it's just theism. God, does it exist? You know, uh, it stands very firmly. Uh, sure. But no one takes the time to ask that question. I think we also don't kind of gaze at the stars like we would have once done and thought about the majesty. I think we all kind of distract ourselves. But sorry to get up on a tangent. No, I think that's helpful. I, I probably, in an effort to rush, kind of downplayed the significance of doubt in the Christian life. We're going to spend a whole week on that uh, next semester. So um, if you're at a spot where you are questioning science and doubt, that's a spot I've been in at a time in life. So I don't mean to... Th- and Paul doesn't think that there's no place uh, for doubt or, or, or questioning God. The point here is a, a moral one. We all know that we're morally responsible for our behavior, and we can see the order of, of um, the world in creation. Okay, and the, the point is we know right and wrong, even apart from being given the, the Torah, right? So you know murder is wrong, even if you didn't have the Ten Commandments, and we still violate our moral code. So here's... Uh, uh, John Piper, he summarized uh, this idea uh, with this quote. The infinite, all-glorious creator of the universe, by whom and for whom all things exist, who holds every person's life and being at every moment, is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, and dishonored by everybody, that's your blank, in the world. That is the ultimate, that's another blank, outrage of the universe. So one of the things I think when you when we really kind of dive in and submit to the authority of Scripture, you see the Bible views the world differently than CNN and Fox News view the world, right? So we nobody on TV and nobody in popular culture is saying the great problem with the universe is that God is disrespected and disregarded, right? That's not, no one's lying in bed awake at night in Washington, D.C. worrying about that problem, right? Um, but that's the problem the Bible's worried about. And uh, because if God is the greatest possible being, then the greatest possible outrage is that He is not receiving the respect and the honor that He deserves. It's a really countercultural way to look at the world, and it's the way that Paul starts Romans 1. So here's the gospel truth. It's the dividing, the dividing line of sin is not between us and them, but right down the middle of each of our hearts. So blank there is hearts. So there's a tendency, and the, the reasons for this are kind of complicated. It has to do with human psychology and kind of tribal thinking and, and the way that we view the world, especially kind of religious people. But we like to think about 
morality and problems of the world and we say there's them and there's us and those are the people that do those things and go to those places and struggle with those ideas and engage in those kind of behaviors and then there's me who doesn't do those things and I'm say that is a religious way to view the world that is not a gospel way to view the world so the gospel doesn't say that there's bad people who live in those places in those kinds of countries who um, behave in those kind of ways who go to those places on Saturday night and don't go to these places on Sunday morning and then there's the good people. The gospel says we're all screwed up, right? We're all starving. We're all thirsty. And really the message of the, the gospel people is telling all the other starving people where the bread is, right? So really, of all people, we ought to approach our own morality as we engage the world with incredible humbleness. because. The Christian worldview has no reason to think of yourself as morally superior in the way that kind of a pagan moralism could kind of create moral superiority. Because if you have the right ideas and, and hate the right people and engage in the right behavior, then, then you are better than other people. But the gospel says none of us are good and we all need help. So of all people, we ought to be humble because sin isn't somewhere out there. It's, it's right in all of us. All right, so I'm going to hustle because I really want to finish. So Romans 2, key point is rescue won't happen by obeying the laws of the Torah. Rescue won't happen by obeying your underlying there's laws of the Torah. This is tough, especially if you are kind of a two or three times a a week go to church kind of traditional Christian person. You think, well, following the law is important. Uh, We might not say law, we say Bible, but uh, we think that's where we get our rescue. You know, we do our daily Bible reading, we keep up with our prayer list, we attend church, everything's going to be okay. Here's what Paul says, though. Kyle, you want to read this for us? Yeah, sure. For all who, uh, who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So what Paul's saying here is um, even if you've heard the law, if you don't follow the law, then it does you no good to have heard it. Right? So that's the basic point. Here's a quote um, from N.T. Wright that I think kind of captures this idea. So Wright says, Sometimes what's going on inside the package doesn't match the badge and the name on the outside. When that happens, the badge means the opposite of what it says. If a Jew breaks the law, his circumcision becomes, in effect, uncircumcision. Not that he ceases to be physically circumcised, but that his real standing before God is the same as that of an uncircumcised Gentile. Right, so let's think about this like um, this metaphor of a badge. You know, we all do this. You put on a badge to show that you're a certain kind of person. And that badge is going to do with behaviors or traditions that you do or don't follow. And you say, you know, I'm a good person because of this or that. And you kind of show the world a front. What Wright's saying here, and kind of echoing what Paul's point is, is just because you follow a religious ritual, if you're not transformed or changed in your heart, it doesn't matter. So Romans 1, Paul's talking to the people, the Gentiles, who haven't received the the Torah, the law of the Old Testament, and saying, you're still under condemnation by God because you know what's right in your heart and you're not doing it. Romans 2, Paul, not uh, to exclude anyone, make sure everyone hears the bad news, telling people who have heard the law, yeah, uh, Jewish people, you've heard the law, so what? You're not following it. Right, so you, yeah, you know all these commandments. You won the like the Bible Bowl or whatever, but it doesn't matter if you can like memorize all the commandments in the Old Testament. And you're not following any of them. You get no bonus points for that. You're just regurgitating facts and ideas. It doesn't matter. So don't hear, don't don't take Paul here to be saying it doesn't matter if you know the law. It doesn't matter if you know the Bible. That's that's not his counterpoint. But his point is, if you know it and don't follow it, it doesn't matter if you knew it in the first place. Right. So the ultimate point of Romans two is. Don't be feeling so good about yourself, religious people, just because you put on a certain badge, you're not going to be okay before God based on your works because you're not living up to God's standard for you. So the gospel truth is every religion and worldview except for Christianity has essentially the same message. right? So I think most people in the world recognize something like what we're talking about. I'm screwed up. 
I got, I got problems, I got anxieties, I got insecurities, I got places where I'm not as honest as I wish I was, there's dark places in my heart that desire things I wish I didn't want, I messed up, right? So I, 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 mean, I come to Bible study, I put on a collared shirt, sit in the chair, try to lead, you know, I can put on a front, but the truth is, I got issues, and, and so do you, right? We're, none of us are whole, and so every religion in the world says, here's what you do. Here's the, the five pillars that, that you follow. Here's the trips you have to take. Here's the meditations you need to engage in. Here's the way that you put um, religious practice up on a pedestal. Here's, there, is, there is no God. You put yourself up on a pedestal. Become um, your best self by doing these steps. So every kind of worldview has that message. Here's what you do. Right? And then there's the gospel that says the exact opposite. It says you can't do anything. Here's what he did. Right, So it's totally backwards from the way that we as humans want to view the world and everyone else does view the world. Right? In your humanity, you want to make things right, especially medical, dental student, kind of ambitious, type A personality. You know, how can I fix it? Right? What are the, okay, what are the three steps I need to do to, to fix it? That's, that's not the point. Right? The point is you can't fix it. It's so screwed up, you're not going to fix it. Um, and so Paul's not telling good news here, right? So we're two chapters in. Paul hasn't said anything happy, right? It's all bad at this point. Okay, Romans 3. God's righteousness has rescued the world through Jesus. God's righteousness has rescued the world through Jesus. Rescues your blank there. Okay, if you had to memorize five verses in the whole Bible, you can get the whole Bible in these five verses. All of the Old Testament... All of the new, I mean, the whole point is in these five verses. You should read the rest, but this, I mean, this is it. This is the whole deal. For now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For it, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So Paul, being a good theologian, uses these multi-syllable words, lots of commas, run-on sentences. It's kind of hard to follow what he's saying. And the good news is, like, there's no theologians here tonight. We kind of make fun of them. They write in ways that are unnecessarily confusing, right? And they're... Um, but Paul's brilliant, obviously, and I, I couldn't write a sentence like this. And in, in fact, I think when we look at it closer, we see, man, it's unbelievable. So let's just, we won't do the whole thing, but let's start in 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I think keyword there, all, that uh, pretty much, that means, uh, I think the uh, Greek translation for all is all. Everybody, right? That's the point, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's the bad news. Comma, and are justified by His grace. So justified, this is a legal term, means to be declared righteous. So this idea of righteousness is a, a key concept for Paul. It means to be true, okay, to be true. So and if an arrow is righteous, it hits its target. It's true. So if you're, true, if you're declared true, by God's standard than you are in God. You have the righteousness of God. You have His trueness, perfect love, perfect justice. So this is an interesting phrase, by His grace as a gift. So grace and gift have the same root word in Greek. So it's almost kind of awkward what he's saying here, like in the original text. Uh, I, don't wanna, I don't read Greek. This is just what people smarter than me that do have, have pointed this out. But So we're justified by His gift as a gift. So Paul's just one like, extra, just in case you missed it the, the first time, let me say again, this is a gift. You did not earn this. This gift, this justification is given to you as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, I want to make one more point, whom God put forward as a propitiation. So this is another like, really Paul, that's the word we got here, propitiation. So this idea is a, is a substitute. Right, so in like kind of Western legal thinking, this idea is, is kind of abhorrent to us. Like, if if I committed a crime and you wanted to punish Kyle for it, that's disgusting. We we wouldn't do that, right? We would punish the one who committed the crime. And so this is why the, another reason why the gospel is so countercultural, because God is punishing Jesus for the sins that you committed, 
as a gift in giving you the righteousness of Jesus, right? So you, you're trading in your sin and you're receiving Jesus' righteousness. That's why it's so important that Jesus is both divine, the Son of God, and that He lived a sinless life because He has to be worthy to stand as the perfect sacrifice, right? That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. How can He be our propitiation? How's that fair? Well, He's got to be, He's got to meet the standard of a sinless, perfect, and divine life to stand in our place. All right, gospel quote, said better than I could ever say it. Timothy Keller. Though the, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with Him. So we were under judgment for sin. God rescues us and gives us His fellowship, relationship with Him. And then He restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together our new life together with Him forever. So in one sentence, Timothy, this is separation. We need to be rescued. We're rescued. That's justification. Then we get restored for creation, which we can enjoy our new life together. That's sanctification with Him forever. That's glorification. One sentence, Tim Keller covered the whole gospel. It's beautiful. Okay, so gospel truth in Romans 3. We're talking about the five solas. Does anybody know know what these are? So if you're uh, into kind of Reformed theology or that persuasion, you may have, have heard some of this. I think these, I think these are true and, and helpful. So the five kind of uh, Martin Luther talked about, these are the, the five only. So sola means only. So first would be Scripture alone. The Bible alone is our highest authority. Sola fide, this is faith alone. We're saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Three is sola gratia. This is grace alone. We're saved by the grace of God alone. Four, solus Christus. This is Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And then finally, sola Dei gloria, to the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God alone. So we could do a lesson on each. Maybe we should, but you could do a lesson on each of these, right? I mean, just so powerful. I would just want to point out your blanks here, which were the ones that, kind of, that stood out to me. Soli, sola Scriptura. So where are you putting your authority? When there's conflict between what you believe and what other people believe and what the Bible says, where do you come down and where do you place your authority? So I think Romans 3 saying ultimate authority goes with God in, in Scripture. So sola Christus, so we want to place our salvation in the hands of Christ alone. And then I think we, ought to, we talked about this a little bit um, last week, but everybody in here has got a chance to live a special life or you can go through the motions. And I want us to, to think together about how we can live lives for the glory of God. So let's not live a life in a way that the world will look at you and say, well, you know, you're such a good doctor, such a good dentist, so smart, what a beautiful family. They got it, all, they got it so together. Let's try to make a, a whole church of those kind of people, right? Let, instead, instead of living a life with that goal in mind, let's live a life that people will look at us and say, God is great. We've got to give God glory because God deserves the praise and glory of every person from every nation, right? And we have it within us to live that way. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that the ripple effect of what we do here on Monday nights can make that kind of difference in Memphis and then everywhere you guys move when you finish school. So here's the discussion question. We skipped the first one, and I'm sorry about that, but let's discuss this one. What people or ideas have authority in our culture? So who... who uh, the question is like, who says? So if somebody says something, where do we, most people believe it? And then are these healthy places to give authority? Literally the first thing that popped in my head was like, four out of five doctors agree, or four out of five dentists agree. Yeah, that's good. There's no doubt, we talked about that a little bit last week, but you all of us in this room are on our way to being given kind of undeserved authority, right? So people will trust you to give them advice about things that you don't know anything about. If somebody comes in your office and asks about marriage advice, I mean, it's kind of all over the place. And so I think we need to be good stewards of that and use that not for our own glory, but also let's not discard it. Let's say, well, if we have this um, opportunity, let's use it for the glory of God. Youtubers, bloggers, authors, 
people on TV, people mm-hmm. in those positions. The problem is, is that people oftentimes in those positions have a need to provoke, have a need to get clicks, and so the things that they say sometimes inevitably don't match even what they believe, and oftentimes not what truth is, but people that we see that have a voice, for sure, and I would say, is it a healthy place? No. Yeah. Because it's not about the truth, it's about the kind of nature in which it's presented. Does it start conversation? Does it provoke thought? You know? Yeah, we kind of this, like... conversation it's like this soup of awfulness right it's like the mix of social media and kind of political tribalism and 24-hour news cycle and kind of identity politics all just like you know there's no there's no truth or goodness coming out of that there was a class for parenting your teens yesterday at church that we were in and the guy was talking about how we're so like there's so much information so like it's funny when you ask this like there's authority in our culture as a mom who's like busy doing mom things I tend to think like well any, if anyone tells me something I'm gonna be like oh, that's, that's probably true because I, I don't have time to research it myself so <laughs> like sure whatever you say and, which is terrible but like you fall into that trap I think of just like you have all the information all the time from who knows what source that you're just like sure but there's very little actual like wisdom being mm. shared you know it's all just a lot of information it seems like i think on the on the converse you either think everything's true or you think everything's not true yeah and i, yeah. I think i'm more in the latter there yeah. where it's like uh, you know just so inundated okay. with information that it's all fake mm-hmm. it's just all false mm-hmm. and i'm probably more right than you are but <laughs> definitely there's some bad info out there that would be fake news right there. <laughs> no, definitely. She thought Greatest Showman was well-received critically. I did. I was like, everybody loved Captain Movie. It must have gone. Was it not? Everyone I've talked to said that they loved it. I love it. And then we looked it up, and I was like, oh, it's like a 55 on Rotten Tomatoes or something. I was telling everyone that everyone thought it was great. Anyway. It won Best I thought it was um, most people that we're surrounded with, um, kind of just in, in the way we live our Tuesdays, so to speak, give incredible amounts of authority and trust to people who don't know what they're talking about, especially in questions about what really matters in life. So how to live life well, the kind of people who have authority about how you should and shouldn't live and, and what you should or shouldn't do to be happy and to live a virtuous life. The people who have authority in those areas have no clue what they're talking about. And so maybe it's an opportunity to kind of pause and say, what, is, what does God say about how I was designed to live? And um, I think that's helpful um, to, lo- to look at, especially Romans 1 through 4, I think is a great summary about what it's all about. Okay, so that's really Ro- Romans 1 through 3 is, um, there's your, your five solas. So Romans 1 through 3 is really the gospel. Romans, Romans 4... Paul kind of makes his first turn to, to apply this to how it matters. So kind of remember what, Paul, what Kyle talked about last week. So the church in Rome, remember, is kind of having this cultural, tribal argument. There's the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and they're disputing over a bunch of kind of customs and traditions and uh, religious festivals, things like that. And so I think seen in that context, the point Paul is trying to make here is pretty, pretty clear. So Paul's saying in Romans 4, that the, the point of the gospel, one of the points of the gospel is to create the faith-based, multi-ethnic community of Abraham. Somebody want to read this text for me? That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told so shall your offspring be so I just want you to, to think or wrapping up here but just imagine for a second it's about <clears throat> it's about 5000 years ago this pagan guy is walking around in the desert 
He doesn't know God. He hasn't even really lived a particularly moral life. There's kind of some sketchy stuff in his background. And God calls this old man and his wife, they have zero children, says, I'm going to make you three promises. I'm going to make a great nation out of your family. I'm going to give you a great land. And I'm going to bless every person in the world through your line. Abraham didn't do anything to earn that kind of promise. And Abraham had no reason to believe that promise. It seemed really unlikely that he would be the guy, right? This like old dude, no kids, not really like, certainly not a Christian, you know, like not even a, a thing. There is no thing yet. And um, so then fast forward 5,000 years, and 2 billion people in the world are worshiping someone who came from the, uh, the line of Abraham as the Son of God and are committing their life to live for the glory of that God forever. Right? How unlikely is that? So Tim Keller has, has said that Christianity is the most economically, um, racially, and culturally diverse religion in the history of the world. And it, it's absolutely true. There's no other religion that has people on every continent, of every color, of every educational background, of every socioeconomic status, worshiping the same God together. There's nothing else like it in the history of the world, not just in the world today, like ever. This has never happened before. And so Paul's point here, talking into, not unlike today, a racially charged situation where people have deep kind of cultural, traditional affinities that they want to hold on to that make them feel more comfortable the way that we've always done it than the way that you guys want to do it. Speaking into that, Paul says... Uh, look at verse look at verse 16 right at the end. He's talking about to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. So he's saying, hey, Gentiles and Jews, you guys both share the faith of Abraham that through the line of Abraham, Jesus Christ has redeemed the world. So the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all? So how is that possible? How can Abraham be the father of the Gentile Christians? Right? Because the Gentiles are not related to Abraham. Right? But the family of God is not a family related through blood or genetic inheritance. The family of God is a family that's based on faith. That's the point of chapter 4, is that the family of God is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial family that's bound together by a commonality not of race, not of politics, not of genetics, not of even similar interests or or similar personalities, we're bound together because we have faith that Jesus Christ was our propitiation, Romans 3, right? We have faith that we have the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, you're a family, so start acting like it, right? Like, stop it. Um, and so I think that's really powerful, and, and a word that we need to hear, right? A word, a word that I need to hear, that we're a family not because we're all the same. In fact, that's kind of the opposite of the point. We're a family, not because of anything about us. We're a family because God said, these are my people. And so probably my favorite author um, and, and preacher is a guy named David Platt. He's got a great name, um, but he, it means great. So if you haven't read Radical, just scribble that down. It's probably my favorite book. Um, but so Platt's talking about at the end of your life and when you cross this side into eternity, what will you have wished you lived your life for? It's kind of reflecting back on this um, gospel Pauline idea that the family of God is a multi-ethnic, multinational family. And he says, we wish, we will wish we had given more of ourselves to living for the day when every nation, tribe, people, and language will bow down around the throne and sing the praises of the Savior who delights in radical obedience and the God who deserves eternal worship. So there's this idea uh, in Christian missions, should we go to the hard places, the places where the gospel hasn't penetrated yet, the places where there are no believers. Because all the easy places we've gone to, right? Places that speak English, like we've already sent missionaries to those places, right? P places that speak easy languages, we've sent people to those places, like Spanish. If there's a, if there's a nation that speaks Spanish, someone in South like we've sent missionaries there. The places left are tough. They're tribal, tribal regions that don't want missionaries to come. So should we go there? And Platt's point is, not only should we go there, we will go there. And not only will we go there, but there are Christians coming out. 
And and she's like, oh, God, that's a kind of arrogant, presumptuous thing to say. You mean there's, there's Christians in this tribal uh, village in Africa that speaks a language that only you know two thousand people in the whole world speak, and they everyone that's gone, every missionary that's gone in there, you know, they try to kill. There's Christians come out of there, and Platt says, absolutely. So how do you know that? Well, you know that because um, that's what the Bible says. So think about Revelation seven nine through ten. So this is how the story ends, right? This is why missions matter, because at the end of history, John says, After this I looked up, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, the palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we're gathered together and we're unified, not by all the things that our culture says matters, not by all the things that all the dumb people that have authority say is most important. We're gathered together and we have unity based on faith in Jesus Christ and we worship Him forever. So that's what Romans 1-4 through is all about. Here's a chart that just kind of says, what's the key point, what's the verse, gospel truth. So I went a little over. Thank you guys for hanging in there. It's okay. It's all right. You get one more chance though. Big trouble. Um, that was great, David. I've heard you do some form of that. I don't know. All right. I want to thank David for doing a wonderful job on the podcast uh, for another great week with a great group um, looking at some of the best chapters in the Bible. I keep saying best, and that's maybe a little problematic to say, but just really deeply theological and uh, important chapters. Uh, just the words held within these chapters are uh, just so valuable uh, as, as a Christian so deep theologically and so on and so forth. Um, it's just an honor to be able to sit around in a circle and study these things together. We'll be back with chapters 5 through 8 in two weeks. We have Labor Day and then we'll be back in two weeks. I'll be teaching on those. Um, I said this a couple weeks ago, but chapter 8 of Romans is my favorite book of the Bible. It contains my favorite verses in the Bible, verses 38 and 39. And uh, In fact, a uh, story that I'll tell then, I'm sure, is that uh, John Piper, he actually taught an entire year on just chapter 8 alone. And we're going to do it not only just in one week, we're also going to throw 5, 6, and 7 into the mix as well, and great chapters in their own right. Um, of course, all this wasn't written as chapters, it was written as one letter, as, as one narrative. And so obviously it's hard to split them up, but there are movements, and it's nice enough to s- split up into sections. So. Um, Hope you have a great week. Hope it's a real blessing to you, and uh, look forward to seeing you next time. As we were doing in prayer request, it is medical school's first test on Friday, and there's a lot of nervousness and a lot of concern about that. Of course, it's easy when you're not in school to say, well, you're going to be okay. It's going to work out, and for sure I think that's true, Uh, but obviously there's a lot of just anxiety that comes with medical school, with dental school, and so I do pray for you peace and that things will go as well as they can, that you'll perform your best. So if you're out there and you're about to take a test and maybe you're listening to this to avoid taking the test, um, go back, study, work hard. I'm sure it's going to work out just fine. So uh, talk to you guys soon and uh, hope to see you here Monday night, 630 at my house in Germantown and again here on the podcast with the MDDDS podcast. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.